This morning, we want to talk a little bit about unexpected grace. And I'd like to start with thinking, think, think of some of the world leaders right now, okay? And, and maybe some of the world leaders that you're a little concerned about. You know, in the news right now, there's a lot of talk about Putin, right? Probably not even saying the name right. And in Russia, and Russia invading Ukraine, and um, someone sent me an article a couple of weeks ago wondering, um, wondering, well, maybe, maybe Putin's the Antichrist. Or maybe he's the one that's going to invade from the north and that we find in Revelation. And so we're starting to associate all these things, these evil things with this man. What if he came to Christ this week? Would that, would that just blow your mind? It would. You know, think of some of our own government officials. And, and don't say any names. Because we pray for them. But what do we pray for them about? Not only to make good decisions, I pray for their salvation. I pray that God would touch their lives and into their lives and that God's grace would show up in incredibly unexpected places. I think about this on a, on a smaller scale, on a personal scale with my kids. My kids are at that age where bluntness is the norm. Tactfulness we're working on. You know, and, and I, th- I think you can understand that. And, and so someone will, will do something, or maybe we're watching TV, and, and someone will either um, take the Lord's name in vain, or cuss, or steal something, and they're like, oh, that was really bad. Are they going to hell? And, and so we get to talk about heaven and hell, and following Christ, and what was bad. And sometimes they say that same thing on the playground at school. And to somebody, and but we're working on that. But they're already starting to make assessments of what people do and who they are, and how God's grace in their mind maybe can't touch them anymore. And we do the same thing as adults. We have people, don't we, that we think of as that person. I don't see how God's grace can get through to them, and we write people off. And sometimes. It's sad, but we do this because we've prayed for somebody for 20 years and never seen them respond to Christ. And so it's not that we don't love them and we're not still praying for them, but our faith begins to waver. Can God still touch that person after 20 years? Are they still open? This morning as we come to Joshua chapter 2, we come to a story of amazing grace. Of unexpected grace. Of grace to an individual that seems to be beyond grace, would be the least likely individual that I would expect God to touch in this town of Jericho. But I'd like to start by looking at Hebrews 11.35. I know some of you are already at Joshua probably, already in the Old Testament. I want to start with the New Testament and we'll look at several verses throughout today of the New Testament to help us understand how to take the story in the Old Testament. But Hebrews 11 is the hall of faith. It's a, a chapter that at one person after person is talking about their faith in God and how that faith and how their, their incredible faith made a difference for the Lord. And so these were all people with genuine, real faith that God used. In the entire chapter of Hebrews 11, only two women are personally named in the whole chapter. And so, when those, those women are named, you want to take notice of that because that's pretty special. In Hebrews 11, by faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. 
short little verse. And we're going we're gonna to look at Joshua 2, which is that story today. But it's helpful to start with the New Testament recap of the story. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient. She was a situation that we wouldn't expect grace to be able to touch. That we wouldn't expect God to draw near to. But God did just that in amazing ways. And so with that as the backdrop, let's jump back to Joshua chapter 2. And we know the setting from last week is the people are camped on the eastern side of the Jordan. They're about to cross over into the land. They're, you know, give or take, but probably about seven miles from Jericho. And Jericho would be the city right across the Jordan that would be some, a city that we would call a gateway city or a guard city. And so to, to cross the Jordan and enter the land, you had to go through Jericho. Now you could go around Jericho, but then the men would come out and kill you from behind. And so you, you started with this gateway town that was designed to protect the land. And so that was where they were headed. And we saw last week that God told Joshua, get up and go. It's time to rise up and go. Moses is gone, but it's your turn to lead because I will give you the land. I will make you strong and courageous. Obey me. Follow me step by step. See what I do. And as part of that, Joshua has received instructions from God and from Moses that their task is to go into the land. God is giving them the land, but they're to destroy everything in the land. That God has asked them to go into the city and leave none alive when they destroy the city. So they won't fall. So they won't turn to idols. So the land is ready for judgment. And so out of this command to get up and go, this command to judge the land, you would assume that the next story would be, let's go take the land. And what's interesting is Joshua chapter 2 doesn't really fit. It's not even, many of the scholars said, it's not even really needed because it's just this little story. Obviously, from God's perspective, it's needed. So we're not saying that. But from man's perspective, why is it in there? And it's interesting because the first story that we get isn't a story of God's wrath. It's a story of God's grace. It's a story of His mercy. And that helps us understand This God that some people say in in Joshua is a horrible God is a God of justice, but also a God of grace and mercy. One other thing that we want to mention, and I just want to comment about the structure of chapter 2. I love reading Hebrew literature and reading their narratives. And and Hebrew authors, when they're, they're telling a story, have a way to help you zero in on the point. They have a couple ways. One is whenever there's a significant plot twist, you're like, ah! or they would be doing that, that's probably the central point of the story. Not that other points aren't valid, but that's probably what they want you to hear. The other way is sometimes they'll arrange the story in a structure that focuses in on a central point. And it's called a chiasm. And and this is our, our language 101, the chiastic structure of Joshua 2, but it helps us understand what's going on here. And I won't spend a lot of time on this, but some of you are really into this kind of thing, and I am, so you're stuck. Um, and, and so the, the story starts out in 1A, I guess I need to look back here, with that the, the spies are sent by Joshua. And we go to the, the second, B, the second theme in verses 2 through 7, 
It's talking about their arrival and their, their safety is threatened. And so it builds this tension in the story. And then we come to see the central point and we'll see a, a discourse from Rachel and, or Rahab between Rahab and the spies that illustrates the incredible grace of God as she confesses her faith in God. Then as we come back out of the structure, we be prime, um, we come back to verses 12 through 21, and it's their departure. And then the spies and Rahab's safety secured. And do you see the parallelism with B? Okay, so it's the, res- it's the, the corresponding aspect to B. And then we come to A prime. The last three verses are the spies return to Joshua. And so you get a great symmetry in this story. And Hebrew authors often did this to help their readers zero in on what they wanted them to notice. And so throughout this, we're going to notice, especially in verses 2 through 7, it just moves quickly. The Hebrew there is actually almost staccato. It's missing details. The author wants to get to the central point. And so he doesn't give us a lot of the details around it, just enough so we understand the story. One um, commentator, I loved their, their explanation of this structure, which helps, help, helps me understand it. Think of it as a sandwich. Okay? And so A and A prime are the bread on the outside. B and B prime are the lettuce. Don't know why you'd need two, but um <laughs> guess some people like lettuce. C, that's the meat. And that's the meat of the story. And I thought, okay, that, that makes a lot of sense. And so that's the structure of Joshua chapter 2. And so we'll want to focus on that center point. We'll talk about the others, but we'll move through them very quickly and get to that center point. It's a great story with many, many challenges, though, and, and some of those I'll bring up. I, I'm not intending to resolve them all for you this morning, um, but I'm, intended to, I, I'm intending to bring them up and make you wonder, so that way you'll, you'll search the scriptures and um, come to some conclusions. We start in 1a, the first verse there, and Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, go view the land especially Jericho. And so we see that they need to go across the Jordan, probably find a shallow spot and swim across. And they need to get to Jericho and spy out the land. This is reminiscent, remember Joshua 40 years earlier? He was part of the 12. And he and Caleb, only two that that gave a good report came back. All came back, but only two gave a good report. So Joshua sent the spies. Some have said, a few have said, well, This shows that Joshua didn't trust God. He was being disobedient. There's nothing in the text that God judges Joshua for this. There's no evidence that this was disobedient. Actually, it was probably wisdom. Um, When God gives us instructions, He expects us to follow His instructions, but to apply the wisdom that He has given us. And remember, Joshua was a military commander. He had a military background. So he says, let's go check it out. While he's getting the, the children of Israel ready to cross the Jordan. So the mission assigned is, is how the story starts. And it just goes right in the second half of verse 1 to the, the second um, phase of the story. Unlikely Rahab acts on a faith worth risking your life for. I know that's a little wordy, but the, the words actually are, are very important there. Unlikely Rahab acts on a faith worth risking your life for. Let's read the next few verses. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. 
You might say, wait a minute. That's a really odd beginning to the story. And you could picture the spies in disguise walking around Jericho and, and looking for a, a place to get information. And one of the things about Rahab the prostitute is she probably ran an inn. She probably ran a place where people would stay. And unfortunately, strangers would come and go a lot. And so it ended up being a very ideal place to get information and to not be detected, so they thought. And so it was, it was probably one of the better places to get information. But the question we start with in verse, verse 2 there is why, or verse 1, why Rahab? Why Rahab? And we have to understand some things about Rahab. Number one, she had a number of strikes against her. Number one, she was a Gentile. And, and Gentiles were, were, view, were despised by, by the Jews because they didn't follow Yahweh. And we know that in this area, they were Canaanites or, or Moabites, and they, they followed all kinds of other gods in all kinds of despicable practices, including, like we said, child sacrifice and a number of other things that were happening. And so there's two strikes against her right now. She was a Gentile Canaanite who they're supposed to watch out for. Another strike against her, she was a prostitute. This, to, to the Israelites, would have been viewed as a, a despicable practice and should have been and, and should be today. Some have even tried to soften the story and say, well, she wasn't really a prostitute. They got the word wrong there. The problem is the New Testament uses the, a, a word that could only mean prostitution for her. She was a prostitute. She was a sinner. She was a wretch. As we sang about in Amazing Grace. And what that does to the story is it makes it all the more incredible. It makes us appreciate the grace of God all the more. And boy, do we need to do that. And so we don't want to water down Scripture and try to, to say, well, it doesn't really mean that. No, it means, it means what it means. And it means God reached out to her. Another strike against her, she was also unmarried and with no kids. We see that when, when her family is, is described a little bit later, and we'll see that a, a few chapters later in Joshua. But all these things would really make them say, why Rahab? Why Rahab? In the end, we don't actually know why. Except for this. God sovereignly wanted those spies to talk to that woman because she was already beginning to believe in him. And we don't need any other answer than that. Except God directed them to that door. Remember, the hero of Joshua is God. And he is orchestrating events. And this is a, an event that is orchestrated to show his grace and mercy, but also long-term to secure the line of Christ. To secure salvation. Praise God that forgiveness can extend to anyone. And that grace can extend to anyone. And God can use anyone. Let's read on, verse 2. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Disguises might not have been too good. Because right away they know, people are going to the king, servants are going to the king, hey, there's spies here. They knew the Israelites were, were seven miles away across the Jordan. They knew what had happened. And we're going to find out from Rahab, they were shaken in their boots. And so they were on alert, and we read on to verse 3, Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, 
Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out the land. And we come to a, a, an interesting point in the story. So the king comes to her door. Spies are there. We'll find out in the next verse that she's already hidden them on the, on the roof. So what's she going to do? And this begins to reveal to us where she's at because this is a test of her allegiance. Will she give the spies to the king or will she protect the spies? It's a choice she has to make. We read on, verse 4. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me. I do not know where they're from. So she lies to them. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, and that's the gate of the, the city walls, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. After the, the flax was pulled up at harvest time, it was soaked in water was their custom for three, four weeks to separate all the fibers and then you'd lay it out on the roof to dry and, and be able to take the fibers and turn it into cloth. And so she had hidden them under those, those stacks of flax that were on the roof, probably a, a two-story house. And in verse 7, a, a great irony, sense of humor. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. And it's really interesting because the ones that were pursuing, the ones from the city are now locked out. And the ones from Israel are now locked in. And it's just sort of, sort of fun. And, and, but um, what we see here is, is the story of Rahab risking her life in an act of faith and allegiance to Yahweh. If she is caught, if the king finds out the men are there, she dies. She's killed uh, without exception. And so for her to even lie about this was, was a, a, a testimony of her allegiance. And one of the questions that often comes up is, was she wrong to lie? Is it ever right to lie? We're not going to spend a lot of time on that this morning. We could. I'm going to give you four major options, and I'll mention what I believe, and you can research it on your own. But that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is coming, the meat of the sandwich. And so we don't want to lose the point on an ethical discussion, although that's a fun discussion to have, and we can talk about it later. But there, there's Christian ethicists have four different ways that they try to handle this. And so we'll, we'll have Ethics 101 here real quickly. Um, the first is the concept of conflicting absolutes. Um, because what they would say is she had two conflicting principles from Scripture. Either I lie or I kill. In essence, if I give up the spies, they're, they're taken to the king and killed. So, so which do you do? And so the, the concept of conflicting absolutes or lesser of two evils says you commit the lesser sin and then repent and God will forgive you. Okay, so some people believe that's what's going on here. Again, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. Second option is hierarchicalism. Say that twice or again or whatever. Sometimes it's called graded absolutism, thinking of the absolutes. And in this concept, there's two sins, but, but not all sins are created equal. Some are worse than others. And, and here on earth, we do know that there's truth to that. And so God will 
allow you to commit the lesser sin and not call it sin. And that way so you can avoid the, the higher sin, or in hierarchy, the higher sin. They use examples out of Exodus of the midwives preserving the Hebrew babies for this. Um, there's some challenges there. How was Jesus in all points tempted as we are if this would have been a valid way of, of committing sin? And Jesus never committed sin. And that's just one of the arguments against this. And, but we'll go on. We, we could stop here a long time. The third one, non-conflicting absolutes. And in the idea of non-conflicting absolutes, there are, there is always a third way. It's a false setup to say it's either lie or save the spies. Um, in non-conflicting absolutes, it says those are both true. You obey both of them, and God in His sovereignty and omnipotence is perfectly capable of saving the spies in a different way. Make sense? And, and so, some, some great verses to look at there. Um, I, I've listed John 17, 17. Sanctify um, them in the truth. Your word is truth. Um, Proverbs 35, every word of God proves true. The character of God is absolute truth, and we're to follow the character of God. Those that hold this note that in this passage, Rachel's, or Rahab, I keep doing that, Rahab's lying is never commended or condemned. It's just listed as a historical fact. What's commended is her faith. And so we can't from this story say her lying was commended. Paul in Romans 3, a great verse to read on this, he's talking about God's grace and how God's grace abounds to sinners. And then, oh, so should we sin more? So that grace can be shown even more and God can be glorified? And we read, but if through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? It's still sin. And why not do evil that God may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. We can look through those verses a little bit more. The fourth option, and this is not necessarily mutually exclusive to the others, a right to truth forfeiture. Right to truth forfeiture. And almost all of the views would say it's right to withhold truth. That, that Rahab didn't have to say anything. There is no obligation to help evil commit evil. And so if, if the, the king's men, the king comes to the door and says, where are they? She didn't have to tell them. She could have been silent. That, that's um, the, the right to truth forfeiture, that they don't have a right to the truth. Um, some extend this to say lying in war is okay because in war there's no expectation of truth. And so, so then, just like telling a joke, the person isn't expecting you to tell the truth. In war, they're not. Those are four views. You probably could sense where my view was. Um, I lean to view number three. I, I don't believe we should justify sin. And, and sin is sin, and God is God. And God is able to handle the truth and, and accomplish His purposes. But it's worth looking at and, and looking at all the different options. There are godly men and women on all of those choices. But the point isn't whether it was right or wrong to lie. The point is to see the seeds of her faith beginning to grow. 
She risked her life for her newfound faith and allegiance. And so we come to point number three, the center point of the text. Rahab's unexpected and life-changing expression of faith. Rahab's unexpected and life-changing expression of faith. This is her confession about God. So we pick it up at verse 8. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. This is an incredible statement from someone that's not from Israel that hasn't been across the Jordan into the Israel camp. And and, and let's just pick this apart in some of the other verses. The first thing she does is gives a confession of God's victory and His faithfulness. She says, God has given you this land. And it's very intentional in the, in the, the past, and it's the past perfect, that God has given you this land. It's a done deal. So she was viewing this as God's victory already accomplished. That tells us a little bit about her view of God at this point and her view of their gods that she had been serving. Conquest is as good as done. She has faith in God's work that God keeps His Word. Ironically, a number of of authors pointed out this is more faith than we often saw in Israel. This is more confidence than people had, than the, the spies certainly had 40 years ago about the land. She says, I know God's given it to you. It's also helpful as spies, you get to see the morale of the enemy. They're melting away from fear of you. Deuteronomy 2.25, and it's interesting, a lot of her statement here reflects the Pentateuch. And some have thought, well, maybe she got a copy of that and read that and that was part of her journey. We don't know. But in Deuteronomy 2.25, we read, This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. And we see that happening right here. So she gave a confession of God's victory. Then she gives a confession of God's might. Picking it back up in in verse 9 there. um, I know that the Lord has given you land. The fear of you has fallen upon us. It's a fear of of their, their power and God's might through them and that all inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Then verse 10, For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you came out of Egypt. How long ago was that? That was 40 years earlier, right? They had heard about it. And then it goes on, And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. When did that happen in the, in the timeline? Remember, we talked about it a little bit last week. That happened just that, this is current. Um, this happened right before the Israel, Moses died and the Israelites were about to enter the land. And what she's done here, she's mentioned one of the first acts of God's power in the, in the Exodus and one of the most recent acts of power. And it's an inclusio that then references the, the, the whole thing. She's saying, I know what your God has done from the beginning to the end. He is a mighty God. And this is actually a huge statement because the Canaanites worshipped many gods and all the gods had different might and different areas of expertise. 
And she's, she's confessing to God's might. We see it in verse 11 as well. And as soon as we heard it, your hearts melted. Our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heavens above and on earth beneath. And so in face of God's might, she was faced with a choice. Do I fight God or do I come to God? And that was the choice that all the people of the land faced. And I I believe this is why this story is first. To help us understand that the people had a chance to respond to God. But they chose to fight God. And we're going to see that in Joshua over and over and over again. They kept coming out to fight. But not Rahab. She followed God. And she came to God. Finally, see there, she gives a confession of faith in Yahweh's supremacy. In Yahweh's supremacy. In, in verse 11 there, as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. There was no spirit left in any man because of you. This last phrase is where we, we see this. For the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And that was phraseology that said, He is over everything. He is sovereign. And for a polytheistic woman that believed in in many gods, this was an incredible statement to say, Yahweh is over them all. Now, was she all the way there yet? I don't think so. We don't know that. Um, We know where her faith ends up from the New Testament and later in Joshua. But this was a significant step in her journey of faith, in her coming to true faith in Yahweh. We we see that language of God in heavens above and on earth beneath several times in the Bible. It is always used in reference to God's sovereignty. In Deuteronomy 4.39, Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath there is no other. It's a statement that God, Yahweh, is God above all else. Twice, when, when Yahweh is giving His instructions, we see in Exodus 24, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. And He's talking about other things in heaven above and on earth beneath and there is no worship of anything else in those domains. God has an exclusive claim for worship. And so this statement by her would encompass almost all of the Canaanite gods, Baal, Asherah, and others. This was significant. Flip over to Deuteronomy 12, 30 and 31. Deuteronomy 12, 30 and 31. And we see a a little bit of God's warning to them and command to them, to to the Israelites. Take care that you be not ensnared to follow them, the Canaanites, after they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods. And it's a reference that they had multiple gods, and, and they're polytheistic, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? That I also might do the same. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. We see why God is judging them. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. 
And what we see there in those verses, and why I wanted us to turn there, is to really understand what these people were about. Multiple gods, despicable acts. And Rahab's statement is Yahweh is God in the heavens and on the earth below. And we might say, and, and the, the cynic in me sometimes says, well, yeah, you know, if I, if I had a whole nation sitting outside my city gates and I think our city is going to be destroyed, I think I'd choose the winning side too. Not out of faith, out of self-preservation. And it's a valid question to ask. Was this real faith by Rahab? And so we have to go to the New Testament. We have to go to other sources rather than just guessing. And so that's why I started with Hebrews 11.31. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And that's a chapter about genuine faith. In James 2.25, uh, the, the section on faith and works and how faith will always result in works, Rahab's one of the ones mentioned. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Some translation says it was counted to her as righteousness. And so we see this was this ended up as a true saving faith. And we're challenged by that because this was an undesirable person. This was a person out of reach of God's grace, we would think. God doesn't think so. And she was confronted with a choice. Who will she trust in? All her gods or Yahweh, the one true God. We're confronted with who we trust in. Yeah, we don't don't trust Baal or other gods of that sort. We trust our own set of gods. Sometimes that's self. And we have an idol of self that says, I know best. I know how to handle this. I don't want God's help. We trust reason. You know, I don't care what the Bible says. I need to understand it. And it's not wrong to try to understand it. But I've watched people elevate reason above God's Word as somehow more true than God's Word. And reason supports God's Word. It does not replace God's Word. Some people in our culture today, many people trust government to solve all their problems. And I know we could talk about a lot of things, but it's a trust issue. And God says, serve me and trust me. Sometimes we trust building a strong family. And that's good. We want to build strong families here. But that's not the end. That's not the goal. The the end goal, the result, is to glorify God and to bring people to Him. And so we're confronted with, do we choose to follow the one true God that is above all else? Or do we trust other things? We learn from Rahab. Point number four. God's amazing grace and mercy is shown in an oath. God's amazing grace and mercy is shown in an oath. In verses 12 through 14. Now then, please swear to me by that, by the Lord, by Yahweh, that, that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours even to death. 
If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us this land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. And this is serious business. This is an oath. And this is an oath after God has said, don't make oaths with Canaanites. Some have said, well, this oath also violated destroying everyone in the city. And those are, those are interesting questions to ask. But the solution comes from the, this idea that her faith has transferred her allegiance. Has transferred her allegiance to Yahweh, to the Israelites. She's really joining the Israelites here. She's proselytizing into the Jewish faith. In fact, we see that in Joshua 6.25, the end of this, but Rahab the prostitute in her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive when we get to the story of Jericho. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. She became part of Israel. We're going to see at the end today that she became an essential part of Israel or an integral part of Israel. And so I think the answer to those questions is to see her change of allegiance and following God as a change of her status. That now they could make an oath with her and they could save her. Because God all along from His promise to Abraham in Genesis 12.3 said, I will bless the nations through you. I will bless you to be a blessing to others. And the idea was that through people's relationship with Israel and coming into Israel to believe in Yahweh, the one true God, they would receive His blessings. Ultimately, through Jesus Christ. Because God would use the children of Israel in that line to bring the Savior that every one of us needs for salvation. So we see this serious oath, this blood oath, that is a testimony to God's amazing grace. And this woman who seems like someone we would never associate with, that we would never expect God to reach out to, was the recipient of God's saving grace, His amazing grace, through her faith. We, we, we have to just stop for a minute. Turn to Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2. Because God's grace is still amazing today. I just want to read the first ten verses. Remind us that we're in the same place. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. In other words, we were like Rahab. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one can boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, 
which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If you ever start to get tired of God's grace and think it's ordinary, go back and read these ten verses. God's grace is just as amazing today as it was to Rahab. Okay, back to Joshua 2. We had to stop and read that. Point number five there. Rahab responded with obedience and allegiance. She responded with obedience and allegiance. Then she let them down by a rope through the window for her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. And that's an interesting statement there. One of the constructions of the time was something, and they, they found it in the archaeology of, of, of Jericho. They had a casemate wall, they called them. And a casemate wall was, was composed of two different walls, 15 or more feet apart, depending on the terrain. And you had a lower wall, because usually the city was up on a hill, so you had a lower wall that was built up, and then an upper wall. And between them, they would put all kinds of rubble for some support for the lower wall, and, and then maybe some planks, And then often, as the city grew too large, they would build houses in that space. So you add some perpendicular walls and you make some houses. That appears to be what's going on here. As they found evidence of that time, that that was happening. Probably came from an earlier tradition of, to protect a city, you built a ring of houses around the city, and that was your wall. Because you made them all touching each other. And so a very similar concept. So she probably did live in the wall. We're like the woman in the shoe, except this is a wall. And, and so that isn't just guessing, and they, they found evidence of that. Pretty cool. And she said to them, go into the hills or the pursuer will encounter you. The hills are actually west of Jericho. So she sends them the opposite direction from their camp. She says, the guys are looking for you towards your camp. Go up to the hills, hide for a bit, then go back to camp. Smart lady. Hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward, you may go your way. The men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath to you. And they gave some instructions about the scarlet cord in the window. And she lets them down. And after they leave, the first thing she does is she obeys and puts the scarlet cord in her window. She responds with obedience and allegiance and follows through. Puts action to her faith. And finally, God uses this undesirable person to encourage Joshua. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. Pursuers searched all along the way, found nothing, and then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun. And they told him all that happened to him. And then they quote her. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands. And also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. So God uses this undesirable woman to get his people ready to go. Just a few moments, some lessons that we can learn. Three different lessons. We've mentioned all of them, so we'll just scan through them. Rahab made a costly choice of faith and allegiance. We must as well. There's no difference today. We, we still are called to make that same choice between this world and all that is in this world and Satan's control and between God Almighty. It's one or the other. You stand for Satan or you stand for Yahweh. There is no middle ground. We're reminded of that from the story. 
Second application, God's grace and mercy are available to all regardless of what we have done or where we are at. You are never beyond the reach of God's grace. I don't care what you've done or where you're at, you are not beyond the reach of God's grace. And you can turn to Him today and repent of those sins and follow Him and He will bring you into His family. This was a story of salvation. She was destined for destruction. She believed in God and was saved. And finally, the last point there, do we extend grace and mercy to all those that God would extend it to? And this is the challenge for those of us in the church. Do we extend grace and mercy to all those that God would extend it to? Or do we have the same mindset, oh, she is beyond God's grace. She's not someone that I would touch or that I would associate with. Well, would God? And if God would extend grace, then we as His children are to be about our Father's business. Every one of us was in the same state and just as wretched. We all start as sinners and wretches. We all are still sinners. But by the grace of God, He places His righteousness on us. And so we have to ask ourselves, who don't we want here? And then confess that to God. See, God orchestrated this story to bring Rahab into the Israelite nation. But what's interesting is her place. And we haven't mentioned this, but her place. In Matthew 1.5, we read in the story of genealogies, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, remember who Boaz was? Who did Boaz marry? Ruth, in one of the favorite stories, right? Ruth and Boaz and the love story. Yeah. It goes on, Matthew 1.5, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Let's look at a tree here. A family tree. So we have Salmon and Rahab. Their son was Boaz who married Ruth. That give you a little bit of chills watching how God is orchestrating this? Now we might say, oh yeah, Rahab was brought in, but she was on the outside. This is pretty inclusive. Boaz had Obed. Obed had Jesse. Do you remember who Jesse had? King David. Boaz, Ruth, Obed, Jesse, David. So we have grandmother, grandfather, grand, great-grandfather, great-great-grandmother to King David. That's a pretty integral part of Israel's line, isn't it? But here's the thing. If you continue that line down, the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ, came through the line of Rahab. And this convicts me. Because God sovereignly orchestrated Rahab's inclusion into his family tree. This undesirable, wicked woman, God's grace changed. And he wants to do the same thing in our lives. And he wants us to extend that grace to others. Don't tire of his grace but also look for who you need to extend grace to. Remember Rahab. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word.
in this story of conquest and war, you start with a story of faith and grace and mercy. And we're reminded that you are God and all of your attributes you possess at once. And Lord, you long for people to turn to you and believe in you and become part of your family. Lord, we long for the same thing. Praise you for your grace. We respond to it. In Jesus' name, amen.